folks, uh, the Apostle Paul um, was some kind of character. Uh, rough and tumble, uh, assertive, confrontational, outgoing, bold, focused, uh, single-hearted, uh, single-minded, um, consumed, um, as Brother Jerry is, with a heart for lost people at all costs. He was a writing apostle. A good deal of the New Testament is credited to him. We've been reading about Paul as we've been taking our excursion through the letter he wrote, the longest letter he wrote, Romans. And you come to grips with the measure of the man. He probably was small in stature. In fact, Paul in that language meant small, but he was a giant in the faith. When you read about Paul, it could make you a little sick to your stomach. Uh, because by comparison, who stacks up? You could get a little depressed, and you could, you could be saying to yourself, oh my goodness, I can't hold a candle to this guy. He's, in, he's, he's leagues apart. I'm not like him. And it can make you feel bad when you talk about Paul. But what if the Lord Jesus said, what are you doing that for? I didn't call you to be like Paul. In fact, what if the Lord Jesus said to you, even one of the stature of Paul needs someone like you? What if God said all that Paul accomplished, he could not have accomplished without the contributions of more ordinary people like you and I? Folks, that's exactly the message of the text before us tonight. I'll just cover the main points. We're coming down the home stretch in Romans, but still have a ways to go. We're in Romans chapter 15 tonight. Take a gander at verse 15. Romans 15, verse 15, and we'll finish the chapter, but don't get nervous We'll, we'll be out of here by nine, I'm sure. <clears throat> Romans 15, look, I've written, Paul is writing this, I've written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He says, I had to say some tough things to you people. I had to give you bold reminders of things you must not forget, you should not forget. But remember, I did it because by God's grace, I was called to do so. I'm a minister specifically to the Gentiles. And you see, he's writing to a predominantly Gentile group of believers in Rome. And he uses interesting language. He says, I am a priest of the gospel of God. And then he said, I'm thinking of you as an offering to God. Priest and offering. You could see that vocabulary in those verses. Folks, that's Old Testament Levitical language. Like from the book of Leviticus, which speaks of priesthood and offerings and all the rest. And Paul, well acquainted with Leviticus for sure, trained under the best rabbi of the day. He knew his stuff. Paul is saying, you know, I liken my ministry to that of theirs. I'm a priest of a kind. I represent God to people, and they are offerings of a kind. I present them to Almighty God. No longer bulls and cows and lambs, people, living sacrifices. You know what Paul said? God is pleased with those amongst, in particular, the Gentiles who've responded to my preaching of the gospel. And he's saying, I'm in this not just to save souls, but to also do that which is satisfying to God. And I thought, oh my goodness, what a good motive for what we do. What a good motive for those who are heading out to Ecuador. What a good motive for all of us in our 
normal discourse in our daily affairs. Oh, it is to share the gospel so that folks would respond. It is to save souls. Yes, that's our mission for sure. But the other aspect of it is to present those souls as an acceptable offering to God. What can you give God who has everything? What if, because of a word you've said, a gospel message you've shared, what if... Uh, in, in a, a time of communication of biblical truth, someone responded, and that person stands with you before Almighty God in heaven one day. That is what would be pleasing to Almighty God. And that's what Paul says he's about. Therefore, verse 17, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. He wouldn't dare take credit for all that has been accomplished in his ministry among the Gentiles because he knows, after all, left to himself, he wouldn't have anything to do with the Gentiles. That was a guy who was a persecutor of the church. Look at the work that the Lord Jesus did in his life, for crying out loud. Therefore, he wouldn't dare take credit for the fruitfulness of his ministry. For I won't presume, verse 18, to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. You know, we make the mistake of thinking we can change people's lives. We put the burden on us to get them saved. Oh, no, 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 no. We have a responsibility to proclaim the message, but it's all about what Christ accomplishes through us. That's why we prayed as we did for the team going to Ecuador, that God would mightily work through them. They're not mighty, but he can do a mighty work through them. And so he says, all this resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit. We could argue about what that means. I don't mind doing it. I like that kind of argument. Signs and wonders, do they exist today as they did in Paul's day? Let me just stake out my ground quickly here. We won't belabor the point. I don't think they do. I think this is a different day than in apostolic times. The reason I don't think we see the same signs and wonders today that they did in that day is I don't think we have apostles anymore. The apostles in the, in the specific sense are ones who wrote scripture. We don't have a need for new scripture. It's completed and therefore the attesting signs and wonders that went along with their ministry it seems to me are not necessary now by the way that's not a test of fellowship you may disagree and you are entitled to your wrong opinion no problem one of the reasons I don't want to get too lathered up about this point is that's not the point you know what the point is even today a declaration of the gospel without a demonstration of its transforming power will usually fall on deaf ears. Even today, the gospel has to be accompanied with some, some, some evidence of its effect in the life of the one sharing it. So if the one sharing it looks no different in terms of lifestyle than the one being shared with, then that gospel message probably will fall on deaf ears. And many uh, cases when we go on missions trips, 
some of the people we minister to have already had a declaration of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why are they not responding? It's often because they're not seeing a demonstration of his transforming power. We look him in the eye and we say the gospel is the power of God to save. It's not just to save you from sin. It's to change your thinking, your values, your perspective, your priorities, all the rest. But if they don't see the same in us then they dismiss the gospel. So Paul is saying, what happened through me wasn't a mere effective expression of the gospel. It was evidence of the transforming power of the gospel in my life. Pray for that, would you, folks? Oh, God, I'm saved to the uttermost. Would you make it clear to those around me? You know, one good thing to pray is this. Oh, God, would you give me a life that demands a question? Pray that. Oh, God, would you give me a life that demands a question? How could I house your spirit and it not show? How could I not be a new creature if I'm truly saved? Oh, God, would you help me so that in, in a company with a declaration of the gospel, there's a demonstration of its efficacy, its effectiveness in my own life. Folks, if we're sharing the gospel of grace and mercy, but we're not very gracious and merciful in the way we share it, we just, we just demean the gospel. You see what I mean? It really has to take root in our own lives so that somebody, you know what the Bible says, always being ready to give an account for the hope that is in you. What a day we live in. It's hopeless. Are you kidding me? It's great to be a Christian in this day because just a little flicker of hope in our lives may beg the question, why are you at peace in a day filled with such unsettledness and instability? And then we get a chance to say, I found uh, a rock who gives me a sense of stability in spite of vacillating circumstances. And his name is Jesus Christ. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Let me tell you about him. So Paul said, I took this gospel all around from Jerusalem as far as Illyricum. That's present-day Yugoslavia and Albania. He said, I fully preach the gospel of Christ in these parts. If you do the uh, math, he traveled uh, a course of 1,400 miles from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. 1,400 miles in a day when transportation was not like it is today. In verse 20, he said, I, I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named so that I wouldn't build on another man's foundation. I heard someone say, Paul's an egomaniac. Look at that. He wants to build up his own thing. Those are people who don't know what they're talking about. No, no, no. This is the heart of a true apostle. A true apostle wants to go with the gospel where it has not gone. Wants to name the name of Jesus where that name has not been named. This, was, this wasn't an egomaniacal thing. This was a strategy. <laughs> he wanted to preach the gospel in the world in which he lived where it had not yet been preached. And so he says in verse 21, as it's written, and now this fellow who is a trained rabbi quotes from Hebrew scriptures, specifically Isaiah 52, verse 15, in saying, they who had no news of him. He's referring to Gentiles. Those who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. He took Isaiah 52, verse 15. That was the theme verse of his life. I'm called, said he, to take the gospel to people groups, namely the Gentiles who had not heard. In verse 22, for this reason, he said, 
I've often prevented from, been prevented from coming to you. He's writing to people, Christians who live at Rome. If you love me, Paul, why don't you come visit? Maybe they're saying. He said, I wanted to, but... Here is my calling. I have got to take the gospel to places where it has not been taken. That's what he said. Therefore, I've been prevented from coming to you. But now, verse 23, with no further place for me in these regions, since I've had for many years a longing to come to you, you know what he says? I'm done. He said, I covered all the ground. It's not that he shared the gospel with every single person in those territories, but a church was planted in every single one of those territories to propagate the gospel. He said, I'm done. Therefore, he says, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I've had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, he wanted to go to Spain. Do you know history does not confirm he ever made it? We don't know this, but this was his heart. He wanted to go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing. So he says, I'm going to come by to Rome on my way to Spain. And when I make a stop off in Rome, I intend to do so, look, to be helped on my way there by you. Do you know what he said quite boldly? I'm looking for your material help, for your financial support. He laid no trip on them. He didn't say, pack up and go to Spain with me. They didn't have the apostolic calling, perhaps. They're not like Paul, perhaps. He never tried to clone them into his own image, but he said, I do need partners in this. I'm going. You're staying, but I can't effectively go and stay there in the mission field without your material help. And so he says, I wish to be helped there on my, on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. I can't do this alone. I need, your, I need your help. Paul was called to be Paul. Only one Paul was Paul. They were not called to be Paul. He never laid that on them, never made them feel guilty, he never said, be like me. He said, be who God made you to be. And if we team up together, I'll be able to do what I'm called to do. He's saying, partner with me. And therefore, he says in verse 30, we skipped a little, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God. By the way, can you see the Trinity in verse 30? By our Lord Jesus Christ, that's God the Son. Love of the Spirit, that's God the Spirit. Strive together with me in your prayers to God, that's God the Father. You know, for those people who say there's no Trinity in the Bible, what are you talking about? How are you going to deal with verse 30? You know what he said? So he says, strive together with me in your prayers. You know what he says? I'm going to Spain. You don't have to go. You may not be called to go, but I can't get there without your help. Financial, number one. Prayer help, number two. And he asks specifically for prayer for two reasons. Look in verse 31. That I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. Jews, my peeps. Disobedient. They disobeyed. You know, the gospel is to be obeyed. You do the gospel by accepting it. They did not. They were disobedient to it, and they were persecuting believers, particularly Jewish believers, horrifically. Paul had already experienced some of it. He anticipates experiencing more in Judea. And so he's saying, would you pray? Pray that I can do my work, just as we prayed earlier. Pray that Satan be bound. Pray that those into whose hands, uh, uh, that those who fall into his hands would not hamper the propagation of the gospel. So that's what he prayed. 
And then he says, he essentially says, join me in, in the struggle. We're in a struggle. He said, join with me by praying for me. And second, he asks that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. Uh, what's he doing? In the verses I skipped, you find out that he collected money from Gentile believers in modern-day Greece. Speak about money. Boy, they need it today. But apparently they had it in that day. And so the, the Greek Gentile believers were moved to contribute to an offering for the believing Jews in Jerusalem. You say, isn't that weird? Jews need money? Yes, they do. Why did they? Well, for probably two reasons. There was famine in the land at that point, and also they were being persecuted, losing their jobs and all the rest. Now, the Jews who believed in Jesus and the Gentiles who believed in Jesus didn't get along. You know why? It was a racial thing. I'm, so, I'm, I'm really glad we've gotten over all this racial stuff today, right? We don't do this anymore. Yeah, yeah, terrible that folks who have the same Savior are still at odds with one another because of skin color. Boy, does that offend our Father who saved us both, all. Anyway, in this day, though God saved certain Jews and saved certain Gentiles, they didn't get along. So Paul, he's brilliant. He comes up with a way to bridge the gap. He said, what about you Gentile uh, believers contributing to the needs of the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, I'll take it to them. But now he says, would you pray that they would receive that offering well? You say, why wouldn't they receive it well? Because uh, maybe they didn't like Paul for taking the gospel to Gentiles. Maybe they felt he was a traitor. He's one of our own boys, and he's gone to the them. We're the we. They are the them. He crossed the line. It was a racial thing. You know what I mean? So he says, pray that they would receive this uh, offering in a good spirit. That's the second thing. He prayed. So here's the deal. Paul, perhaps, no, without doubt, the greatest apostle, is humbly saying, I, I, I need your help. You're not me. <laughs> Don't compare yourself to me. He, he's saying, I, I, I can do things you cannot do. I can do things you, you won't do. But I can't do those things alone. Would you be my allies in the fight by praying for me? And so in verse 24, he speaks of his desire to take the gospel to Spain, but says, I need your monetary support. And now in verses 30 to 31, he says, you can join the fight and partner with me by offering not only your monetary support, by your prayer support. Folks, we're not going to Ecuador except for those who are going to Ecuador. How could we partner with them? We could pray for them every single day. And we could have a hand in what they're doing on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ in Ecuador. That's essentially what Paul is saying. And then he anticipates their partnership in one final way, verse 32. So that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. He needed their financial support. He needed their prayer support. You know what he needed? Their restful encouragement. Who doesn't need encouragement? The good company of fellow believers would be a welcomed respite for a man out there in the cold who's under fire by unbelievers. It's like a soldier coming home on furlough when our, our son, our, our middle son, was in the airborne, 82nd Airborne. He, uh, he would, you get leave from time to time, and he, he would tell us he's coming home. And uh, my goodness, we would do... Uh, we, we just, we couldn't think, what, what can we do? What would he like to eat? What would he, you know, what, what would, we just went out of our way to make the visit short, though it was, as encouraging as and restful as possible. We can't fight his battles. We can't do what he's doing. We're not jumping out of airplanes and all this kind of stuff. What can we do? 
Make the visit home restful. That's what Paul was essentially saying. He's saying, I'm looking forward to encouraging rest in your presence. I need that. So even one such as Paul humbly is admitting, I need help. Don't compare yourself to me. It's not about you doing what I do. It's about you doing your part so that together we can get it done. And he asked for three essential things just in, in summary. One, help me materially and financially, he says. I remember a million years ago, I was a new Christian. I was in the military at the time. A missionary couple came our way. And we were presented with the opportunity to support their ministry in another country, Australia, namely. They were Americans going to Australia. The whole idea was crazy to me. It was just all new to me. What? You're Americans? You're going to Australia? Don't they have like kangaroos there? What's the deal with Australia? What do you? I don't I mean, they get the whole concept. But somehow, God's spirit moved in me and, and persuaded me. My goodness, I can connect with them even without going to Australia. And I just, I made a little offering every month. I made a little offering to them. That's all. Uh, you know, I, I, I was just a guy in the military. What do I know? I wrote their name on it. I wrote a, little, a certain amount on it. I sent it to them. And then I started getting letters. You kidding me? Dear Stuart, thank you for blah, 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 boom. We want to tell you a little bit about what the Lord is doing. Would you please pray for it? And then it was people by name in Australia. Some who have come to know the Lord. Some on the verge. Some far from it. I'm thinking, you're kidding me. I'm in a military barracks. And I have a hand in what's going on in Australia. And all I had to do is, is put a number on a check. How easy that is. They were doing the hard work. I wasn't equipped to do what they were doing. I'm not called. I didn't feel guilty that I wasn't them. I would have felt guilty if I didn't team up with them. So Paul says, you don't have to be me, but you can help me financially. You can help me in prayer. And you can help me by being an encouragement to me. One of the things we do when we go on missions trips, the ones that I lead, one of our objectives is to encourage the in-country full-time laborers, because they're going to be there when we come home. You know, when we come home to comfortable Houston, Texas, they're out there in the fight. So one of the things we want to do is lift up their arms and encourage them while, while we're there. See, here's the point. We're in this thing called the Great Commission together. We're not supposed to all be doing the same things. We don't have to, but we're all supposed to be and can be in the battle together. Folks, nobody in the front lines can get there and stay there without... Uh, the rest of giving, the rest of us giving and praying and encouraging them. I was a chaplain in the army a million years ago, and uh, I was in a tank division, armor, and we were on maneuvers somewhere in the middle of who knows where. And this is kind of a funny deal. It has nothing to do with the lesson, but I remember this. One, one guy said, tank commander, he said, chaplain, ride with us. Bless our tank. So I got in the tank, and it broke down. Two other tank commanders asked me the same thing. All three tanks broke down. So then I would say, guys, would you like me to ride with you? Oh, that's okay, chaplain. You just rest up. We'll be back later. I just wasn't meant to bless the tanks. But anyway, here's what happens with the tank. There's like four guys in the tank. And one of those guys is a driver. He, he's the guy who drives. And then there's a loader. He loads. There's a gunner. He guns. And there's a commander. He commands. You can need four guys to do the tank thing. But our unit had 500 guys. 500 guys. Four guys in a tank. Why? Because the four guys, specialists in what they did, could not do what they did without the other 496. What did the others do? They took care of them medically. They took care of their family when they were deployed. They helped them write wills. <laughs> they gave them shots. They prepared and provided their food. 
They kept their medical records. That's like a big deal. You don't want to lose your medical records. They did all these other things. Yeah, the guys on the front line were specialized folks, but they couldn't do what they did without the rest of the folks in our particular unit. What a great, great picture it seems to me of us in the body of Christ. Folks were in a fight. Today, I suppose, more fierce fighting is going on than ever before. It's for lost souls. We're in it together. Some of us are on the front lines. Our Ecuador group are going to be on the front lines over the next few days. But we all play a vital part. We can't all go, but every one of us can give. Every one of us can pray. Every one of us can encourage. And this great, perhaps the greatest of apostles, closes this chapter with a wonderful benediction. Here it is in verse 33. Now the God of peace be with you. The God of shalom. May he be with you all. Amen. It's as if he is saying, don't compare yourself to me. Don't compare yourself to any other Christian. Just do your part. And as you do, as you do your part, may the God of peace be with you all. And to that, Paul says, amen. So, Lord Jesus, we bow our heads before you. Thank you for calling us, saving us, equipping us to serve. Every Christian here has something to contribute, and every contribution is valued by you and valuable. Now, I pray everyone here is in the battle, in the fight, not looking around at what others are doing, just carving out their own space and their own contribution and doing it faithfully as unto you in a way that is pleasing and satisfying to you until the time of your return. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that some are on the front lines. We love them. We value them. And the rest of us can keep them where they are. Help us to do so. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the brilliance with which you have put us into the worldwide church, named by your name, the Church of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.